Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So my guest this week is Davy Crockett, not the 18th century American frontiersman, but still a kind of folk hero in his own right. Davy started running ultramarathons in the early 2000s, and, well, he's never really stopped. As of recording, he's finished over 100 100-mile races. But that impressive streak isn't why I had him on. As an historian and author, Davy is, in my mind, the foremost scholar of ultra-running history. So in this episode, we trace the development of the 100-mile foot race through time, from its roots in the UK going back as far as the 1700s to its modern incarnation in the United States, and we bust some common misconceptions along the way. As you'll hear, Davy is a wealth of knowledge, and our discussion covers just a small fraction of the entire history of ultra running he's compiled on his website, which is definitely worth checking out. And before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Davey. Davey, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So I wanted to have you on um, to talk about ultra running history. It's a subject that we've covered on the show, um, not super in depth before, but it's something that I think is like really important to understanding our sport. Because I think as ultra running gets more popular in the U.S., I think there's a lot of inaccuracies around like where it started and who kind of like paved the way for what we're seeing today. Um, but before we kind of dive into that. I want to get a better sense of your story. How did you get into running? Um, how did you get into the history of ultra running? What what kind of drew you to the hundred mile distance? Oh, sure. You know, I grew up uh, grew up in the Seattle area and uh, got involved with athletics. Uh, did a lot of skiing up in the mountains and water skiing. And uh, in my college years, I tried to do a little bit of running. Uh, really didn't. Didn't like it all that much. Uh, I remember I, I, I ran a 5K, uh, at the encouragement of a friend of mine and, um, did quite well, but I hated it. It was just, just, just way too fast and my heart rate was way up there. So I kind of gave up running for many, many years. I, I kept skiing, uh, although I tore my meniscus, uh, skiing once and that kind of, um, set, set me back from that. But, it came into my mid forties that I went through kind of a, a midlife crisis, I guess you'd call it, where I was feeling kind of old and slow and wondered if it was all over that to just kind of sit in the couch all day and, and that's what life will, will be. And something clicked. Um, I had uh, some friends that I would go backpacking with uh, once a year. We would choose a destination somewhere in the West and go for a week. And they they introduced me to the outdoors. I was a real indoors guy. And they taught me all, all about backpacking and all the equipment and things that you needed to do. It was a real eye-opener. And um, I, I just loved it. I, in fact, I really... Th- through my even through my youth years, I always wanted to go long distances. If I'd go hiking, I'd always want to know what was behind the next corner, and just keep going and keep going. 
And so I was in my mid-40s that all of a sudden, for one of these backpacking trips, I said, I'm going I'm to get into shape a little bit better. And I climbed uh, the very popular mountain here in Utah for the first time, Mount Timpanogos, uh, that hundreds and hundreds of people do every week. And I did it for the first time, and it was it took me all day. And people were making fun of me on the trail how slow I was going. And it was just an eye-opener that I needed to get into shape and so i went on this backpacking trip and uh and uh, did quite well and then i came home and um that was back in 03 i think since then i've never stopped <laughs> i i just had this determination to get fit and to uh, to go as far as i can go and then it's what happened is then I started doing these kind of, uh, I'd call them long distance hikes, fast through hiking, and um, just loved being out on the trails and, and trying to go fast. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. And, but my wife would get worried about me out on the trails, you know, <laughs> with nobody else. I said, can't you go with somebody else? And uh, I did a little bit of investigation. I'd never heard of ultra running before. But then I stumbled on it on, on the internet and uh, and decided to give it a try. And that was back in '04, and I entered my first 50k race. Thought I would do pretty well, but I came almost in last place <laughs> in a, a nice mountain trail race in Idaho. Uh, but I got hooked after that and uh, and went on and. Uh, and started learning how to do alternating. My first 100-miler, um, I did not finish. I got to mile 87, I think, and just bonked and, and, and was so exhausted I couldn't go any further. And I thought this, this crazy sport was way over my head. What, what, who, what crazy people would try to go beyond a marathon and try to do 100 miles in the mountains? But, but a few months later after I, recovered from all my overuse injuries, um, I decided to finally learn how to run uh, for, for real. And I uh, got some mentors and learned how to run. And then within a few months later, I finished my first 100-mile race out in Texas. And uh, long story short, I've now finished 108 100-milers. Uh, one of uh, very few in the world who have reached that that milestone. So it became a very important part of my life for the last oh, 15 years or so. What about the 100-mile distance attracts you? Oh, you know, it, what, what I love about the 100-mile distance, uh, at least for most people, it requires you to run both day and night on the trails or on on the tracks and roads and i love running at night uh, it's it's just a peaceful and um, and it's also cooler at night and so i love that experience of not only you know running through the day but also running through the night uh, but also it's just i don't know it's um it's a lot harder. I mean, <laughs> you know, I've run some marathons and did quite well. I ran Boston, went to Boston, and that's all okay. But chasing chasing minutes to see if you could go faster and faster that that wasn't that wasn't what motivated me. To me, it's 
it's really getting out in the wilderness and um, and seeing how far you can go in a, a certain periods of time with with some good support. So I just I don't know. I gravitated. I, I did gravitate to the hundred mile distance. If you look at my results uh, after a while, that's about all I was doing. Um, you know, I do a fifty miler now and then, but it it truly was the hundred mile race that I finally. It took me a while to finally figure them out somewhat. You never totally figure them out, but to to be able to get get them done where I'm not in excruciating pain or sick for for days and days I I was able to recover from them pretty fast yeah so if you have run over a hundred at this point and you started running hundreds in what like the early 2000s that averages out to be what like five a year yeah let's see I got serious in about 2006 somewhere around there um, I got to a point where I was doing almost one a month. Uh, wow. I had a three-year period, I think, where I did at least 12 in a year. Now, scattered in some of those finishes were actually some DNFs that did not finish. Uh, I haven't had a lot of them, but each year, one or two that I'd get to 80 miles and something would happen and, and I wouldn't finish a race. So, yeah, sometimes I would do as many as 14, 14 or 15 during a calendar year. So when you say you you figured out the hundred mile distance, um, what do you mean by that? Can you share some secrets that work for you at least? <laughs> well, you know, for rookies, it's all it's all about figuring out the balance between um, carbohydrates, fueling, you know, uh, your your liquids and and your electrolytes, and getting everything in balance where that feels good. I mean, you can be very physically fit and do it do it well, but if you get out of balance, something goes wrong, you get dehydrated. Um, you're not watching those kind of things. Then you start, you just, your energy goes away and you just can't, can't truly finish it. So it took me a couple of years really to figure out some of that balance. Uh, although every, every race is different. Um, whether it's by temperature or terrain or, or my fitness, uh, that, uh, it became, you know, some of them went well, but I think then probably over 50% of it is mental. It's, it's figuring out how to keep yourself out there even when things kind of go bad, when all of a sudden you're saying, why am, why am I here? <laughs> why am I doing this to myself? I'm not having fun right now. I think I should stop. And, um, and I did stop many of those races and it really, it really made me mad, you know, the next day. So it, you just gotta learn how to do the, both the physical and the mental uh, preparation and, and balance where you, where you can pull these things off. Do you have any kind of recovery strategies that you like? Well, what I discovered for recovery is, um, um, I could recover from these 100 miles fast if every week I did a very long run. Um, rather than trying to run every day, and I never did. In fact, it was one of my real high mileage years. I think I averaged 2.5 days per week running. Wow. Um, instead, what I would try to do, and I would try to do this every Saturday, is to at least run, at least run a 50K. Um, and more often a 50 miler. And, I, and these wouldn't be races. They would be my own adventure runs that I would figure out. And maybe I'd leave some, some water someplace or figure out where all the springs were. But if I could do a long run every day, every week 
what I discovered is after a while, my body would, you know, figure out this is going to happen. And then when I would run a hundred miler, I would recover within like two days. <laughs> it, it, it was just amazing. And then I could do, in fact, I got to a point where I could do back to back 100 milers within four days uh, that actually had very good times. Um, the body seemed to to adapt and recover fast as long as I was kind of stressing that body out and doing those very long runs often. And so I think I, think I had a, a year period where I had only missed about seven weeks of not doing a run of at least 50k uh usually on a saturday what do you think about how the sport has changed since at least you got into it uh we just had utmb uh, i guess as a recording i think two and a half weeks ago and every year i'm blown away by like the level of engagement and like the technology and coverage of that race um what was that scene like um, in the early 2000s. <laughs> well, when I started, I remember I'd go run on trails in Utah up in the canyons and I would never, ever see anyone else. In fact, before I heard about ultra running, I thought I was inventing a new sport <laughs> of running on trails because I just never would see anybody. It really was a small, a small group. Once I got associated with the, the, the races here in Utah, there was only 100 miler race also. Uh, Wasatch 100 back then, and uh, maybe only a couple other ultras, the Squaw Peak 50. Um, and so the, the group was really a small group of a couple, maybe a couple hundred people in, in our state. Uh, so very small. We all got to know each other. We were all a very tight, tight group. I got to know the Colorado group uh, very well as I started running races. Um, but yeah, over the years, kind of an explosion happened based on uh, whether it's Dean Canars's books, uh, or Born to Run. Born to Run really made an explosion into the sport. People, uh, trying to do it and not, not very well too. <laughs> Casting aside their shoes, unfortunately, and, and getting injured. But, uh, it's, it has, it has undergone a, quite a very, uh, very significant change of as far as how many how many races and how many people are involved. But here in the United States, we tend to think that we invented it and that, uh, that it's just happening here. But in Europe, it is far, far, far bigger, uh, than it is here and, uh, and was going on for far longer than, than has happened here. So it's great. It'll, it'll continue to grow. I mean, it'll never be like the marathons, you know, the crazy right. thousands and thousands and marathons. Um, but you know, and a, another change that it is when, when I started, I'd say the average age of participant was in the mid forties, uh, people that had, were at a point in their life where they could spend more time doing long miles. But now what you're seeing is a lot of the younger, younger folks in their twenties who are, are setting records and, and doing some amazing things are coming into the sports. So I think also it's attracted a little bit younger crowd lately. Let's go back a bit. I, I want to talk about, I guess, your website and podcast, which is like an amazing resource. And I think the definitive resource for uh, ultra running's history. When did you become so fascinated with the sports history and kind of make it your project to um, help chronicle it? 
Well, I think that was about well, it was about five five years ago. I think five or six years ago. Um, you know, I had been blogging about all my adventures and and races and and had quite a big following of my blog. Um, and then I, I just I just started thinking about writing some blog uh, articles about uh, ultra running. I, I had this curious curiosity since I was doing so many hundred milers. I wondered, was I overdoing it? Um, were, how did the hundred mile runners back in the old days? What was their careers like? How many did they they do? How many? How long were their careers? Did they have to end their careers because of injury or what was happening? And so I just, I just started doing research. I thought it'd just be a little blog article, but it, it turned into kind of an online book. Now I just, I made a big long PDF of I don't know how many hundred pages that I found, uh, over 70 individuals in the, uh, before the 19, before the year 2000, who were able to run 100 miles in a certain period of time. I think for the, for the man that was 14 hours or faster and for the women 15 or something like that. And I, and then I would research each of their lives, each of their careers. And I was just fascinated, uh, how some were, one hit wonders, you know, they would do one or two 100 milers and then just totally disappear from the sport, even though they ran really fast. And then others would have a more longer career. Uh, but most of them only, I think they averaged about 15, 20 in their careers. And I thought that was fascinating. And I, then I started rubbing shoulders with some of these pioneer ultra runners from the seventies, um, who I had shared um, the courses with them, we had run together and I never knew that they were legends. <laughs> they were legends and pioneers and it just blew my mind. And so I started paying a lot, a lot more attention to who these contributors were that, and it struck me that we were forgetting who these were. We, we, we'd never heard of them and, uh, they had no recognition, uh, on, at least on the internet and, and in a lot of the books. So that, that kind of got me going, but really, what really got me going was when I was researching um, horse endurance racing. I knew that Western states had its roots in horse endurance. And so I wanted to know, how did horse endurance running start? And so I wrote an article about that. But then one day I ran into an article that let, that said that um, in 1972, the, there was a group of soldiers who were the first to cover the Western States course on foot and that, that they were recognized by the, what's called the Tevis Cup or the Western States Trail as being the very first. They were given trophies. They had a big, big, uh, big, um, I don't know, uh, celebration. It was all over the papers that they were the first yet. The story that we'd all been told is that two years later, Gordy Ainsley was the first. And so that just, to me, that just, oh, something's wrong here. <laughs> why, why, why is nobody talking about what these soldiers did two years earlier? And so for a full year, I did research into that event with a, a co-writer uh, who was a serviceman. 
and we figured out the story and, and found many of these pioneer soldiers and writers and, and were able to validate that this event really happened, that we really did not have the full story of the origin of the Western States uh, 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 endurance run. And so I published that and it became very popular. And I just said, what? So I decided what more is out there that we haven't heard about. And eventually that started uh, to where I started the Ultra Running History podcast that is hosted on ultrarunninghistory.com. So that was probably about four and a half years ago, somewhere around there. What are some yeah more common like misconceptions about the history of ultra running in the U.S.? Oh, I think the most common is that it started with Western states. Okay. <laughs> so, so where did it start then? Oh, it started uh, a couple centuries ago. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Because I know yeah. I was reading your 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 website, and there's tons and tons of articles that go back all the way to like the 1800s yeah which blows my mind it's it's fascinating and some books have been written and 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 it all depends on what your definition of ultra running is some people want to have very a very slim definition and say oh it's only on trails and it's only in the mountains that's ultra running everything else is not ultra running and that's not the definition that i have my definition is it's it's a race that involves uh, running more than the marathon distance, and it can be on multiple surfaces. It can be on trails, can be on tracks, can be on roads. It really doesn't matter. Treadmill. Yeah, I have done it on a treadmill. <laughs> I've, I've run a hundred miles on a treadmill. I think was it four times now, three times. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, and, and a misconception we have in our modern era, we seem to think that uh, our nation has has been paved with pavement uh, forever, <laughs> and we forget. Well, look back fifty, seventy years ago, it wasn't paved. It was dirt roads. It was rugged, rugged dirt roads that all these people were running on. They weren't running on a bunch of pavement. So. Uh, that's a, another key misconception people have that they think that trail running started in the seventies and it did not. It did not. There were trails for, for decades and centuries before. So, you know, when I look back up, well, when did it, if we're talking about hundred milers, what I found is that really the, the first, the first case of finding a person who ran 100 miles in 24 hours was clear back in 1737, if you can believe it. So <laughs> that's incredible, incredible in in New- Newington, England, and and the first woman who is known to kind of competitively run these hundred milers was in 1777. Now, of course, the indigenous people and people always ask, "Are you ignoring the indigenous people?" No, and certainly they were running very long distances in their cultures for centuries and centuries and usually as messengers between the tribes and they could go very long distances and for, certainly the Tarahumara in Mexico are from, certainly famous for that but when we're talking about organized races organized ultra races that's what I like to kind of zero in on and see see what we do and kind of who as a person who kind of started it all getting a focus on it was a man named Foster Powell in the late 1700s. He wanted, he was in England and he wanted to, to walk from London to York and back, which is a distance of 400 miles. And he wanted to try to do that within five days. 
and he didn't quite make it. it was, he did it in about five and a half days, but that got the attention of the presses and and started eventually a craze in the early 1800s where everyone was trying to beat Foster Powell's record. And they, in fact, they would do it on the same course between York and London, back and forth, and uh, claim all these world records and and do these very incredible incredible walks. And so in these early days, it's all outside, of course. And then kind of the father of 19th century pedestrianism was a man called uh, a man named Robert Barclay Alderdice or Captain Barclay. And what he did, <laughs> he did was he wanted to try to to walk a thousand miles, but he would do it by walking one mile every hour. And you couldn't skip an hour. You had to do one every hour for a thousand hours, which is over a month. And this thing, and he was successful. He was able to do it. And this thing became called the Barkley Match or the Barkley Challenge and created this this real craze during the 1800s where every, you know, so many people, hundreds were trying to do this Barkley Match of, of, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. They didn't have lives, I guess. But they, and the, where they would do it, it was they would they would usually mark off like a half a mile uh, out and back, so so they could you know, and and it would be in front, usually in front of a pub. Uh, so a pub would sponsor it, and so they would spend over a month, every hour walking back and forth. <laughs> and and in England, it, it became such a craze that it would cause traffic jams of carriages and horses coming out to these rural places to watch these crazies go back and forth in front of these pubs. And of course, they'd all get drunk and 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 have great parties and so forth. But it was truly during the 1800s a a reality show that was amazing. And and then they they had they had to try to outdo it and and one of the most bizarre ones that uh, that I found was to be able to do four thousand quarter miles doing a quarter mile every ten minutes. So that's absurd. <laughs> so that's almost for a month. So you're doing a thousand miles, uh, and but every ten minutes you have to do a quarter mile. So. This, this crazy challenge was kind of, you'd have to change your sleep habits somehow. And they were able to do it where they could, they could hit that pillow and just immediately go to sleep. But then they get get woken up 10 minutes later or whatever and have to go right back out there and do it. Can you imagine that? That sounds like torture. Well, this, like that format reminds me of, uh, something that I heard of, I think, you know, within the last year or two, the, the four by four challenge where you run four miles every four hours for like 48 hours or something like that. Man standing, very, very yeah. similar. Yeah, very, it become a very, and that's, yeah, very new enhancement into the sport that is becoming very popular. And I've done one of those many years back before it was, uh, became popular. And yeah, it's a, it's a different type of challenge. And so that, that was just a real craze during the 1800s that was just 
is crazy. I mean, and women even got involved. There was a woman named uh, Emma Sharp in 1864. And, and the thing is, people would wager on whether they would be successful or not. So you can imagine the people who did not want the runner to be successful would try to try to do things to stop him. And this poor Emma Sharp, they would do things like throw chloroform at her, throw uh, embers and uh, tried to drug her. And so she had to finally walk with a friend that had a rifle uh, that would walk with her. And then later, in the later stages, she carried a pistol with her to <laughs> make sure she she wasn't harmed. Uh, because it, it became kind of a dangerous thing, especially as wagers got involved. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there had to be either gambling and or alcohol involved <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> to get people to do that type of stuff. Um, Okay, so moving into the 1900s then, uh, how did that uh, quote-unquote sport evolve? Yeah, so it's one more in the 19th century. Really, the 100-mile the races be, began in 1875. That's okay. where, where I can really see that we have people competing against each other, and they were being effective in, in reaching 100 miles in under 24 hours. But what happened, you know, as I've been talking about these Barkley matches, those were all outdoors. What happened in the mid-1870s is they moved indoors, and so they would run on these, or run or walk on these these tracks that uh, were sometimes, you know, usually seven or eight loops to mile, but sometimes as many as 20 or 30 loops to mile in, in small places like city halls and so forth. And um, so they would they would compete, and it became quite a craze, especially in 1879. It was just there, uh, I think, over a 1,000. I found over a 1,000 individuals who got involved in these races and were able to do them very good. And they are able to bring the times down for 100 miles way down, uh, well under uh, 24 hours, and we're we're kind of very very successful in that. And um, let's see, moving into the moving into the 1900s, especially in America, I would say where the 100 mile or uh, became popular or get, got attention was on a course from Milwaukee to Chicago, which was about a hundred miles. And so these individuals would try to, you know, beat the fastest known time, uh, between Milwaukee and Chicago. Um, there were some great runners, Albert Curry, uh, kind of set the fastest known time of under 24 hours. And, and then, uh, he brought that down close to 18 hours and then a man from illinois called sydney hatch brought it clear down to 16 hours and so that that 100 mile distance became a important milestone uh there um back then um and then um but really where the 100 mile or got the most attention was in south africa um the comrades marathon started in 1921 which is about 54 55 miles but then individuals there in south africa wanted to take that to the 100 mile distance and would make uh, make courses and and they were very effective they would uh, they would start making world records 1937 a world record came down to about came down to 13 hours and 21 minutes um and then a very famous course in England 
It's called London to Brighton, uh, running from London to Brighton. It's about 52 miles. And during the early 1900s, what a number of people would try to do is not do it once, but do it twice. So it's called London to Brighton and back. And they would, um, they would try to set records on that. But then I think the most famous course for 100 miles was, was called the Bath Road in England. It was from Box to London, and, which is about 100 miles. And so the best ultra runners in the world would try to go to the Bath Road and set the world record on that. And they were, they were effective and brought those, brought those down. But then what happened really, is the um, the depression hit um, and the opportunities to be a professional runner and have wagers and all that uh, really dried up during the depression. Uh, they tried to find races. They went to Canada, found some races there, um, but little by little, it's it kind of petered out. And then World War II came, and that even made it worse. Uh, so it really wasn't until the 1950s that ultra running started coming back. Um, comrades in South Africa continued, and uh, then the London to Brighton race began in the early 1950s. That got things going. So it's during the 1950s, 1960s that um, ultra running started in in the United States, and we have. And we really have to thank uh, Ted Corbett of, of the Pioneer um, Running Club in New York City of really starting uh, ultra running and getting it seriously going in the East. He would put on. He was he was an Olympic uh, marathon runner. He 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 competed in the Olympics, and um, but he loved to go further than than the marathon distance. So he started putting on races of greater than um, the marathon distance in the New York City area and many started to to pursue that and his whole motivation for doing that is he wanted to go run London to Brighton which really was the premier ultra in the world the the championship uh, in the 50s and 60s and uh, most most of the Brits were the ones who mostly did the Brits are far far ahead of us in, in ultra running uh, but Ted Corbett helped catch us up. And, uh, so he would put on these races to help himself prepare, but help others prepare so they could go and compete in, at London to Brighton. And, uh, and little by little, these ra- races, and they're mostly on roads, uh, very few on tracks, uh, mostly on roads. And, um, they started increasing, uh, more and more by the year. What kind of gear were people using, you know, I guess first in like the 1800s and then in the in the 40s, 50s and 60s? Because I feel like it's changed so much since then. Oh, man, it sure, sure has. You know, we look back at those really early days and they got these crazy leather shoes or boots that they would use. And you just you and some of them wouldn't even wear socks. Um, one of the very famous world record holder would never wear socks and they would do all sorts of things to try to avoid blisters. And one of the things they would do is, is pour, um, pour alcohol booze <laughs> in their shoes that somehow would, I don't know, help, help maybe the leather or also their feet to, 
to do it. But they try all sorts of things to be able to do that. But they, you know, they ran in, you know, all sorts of things. They, they, they'd even run in suits. <laughs> uh, one guy ran in a velvet suit a lot. Um, because for when they went indoors and would, would run in front of tens of thousands of people in Madison Square Garden, it was kind of a show too. So they would have, they'd wear what they called the pedestrian costume. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know how they did it, but, uh, but then others would, you know, take it off and they got a lot of criticism because people thought they were running around in their underwear and, uh, in the Victorian area. That's for, that's not very nice to do. So all sorts of things, but they ate all sorts of things, uh, beef tea and beef mutton and, uh, you know, they did figure out salts, you know, that salt was important as a part of this, but a lot, a lot of tea, a lot of fluids, uh, beer, a uh, lot of beer, lot good of carbohydrate beer, source, a lot of whiskey, a uh, lot of drugs. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. There Say were, more about that. Yeah. Well, a lot of stimulants, uh, back then certain drugs weren't illegal and they would, uh, because they had such huge wagers. I mean, you're talking, hundreds of thousands of dollars on on a, a particular runner doing well and and the people who were his his trainers or his crew all had thousands and thousands of dollars on them so they would just do anything they could to keep their runners going they would they would abuse them they would whip them they would <laughs> they would wake them up with huge loud horns you know they would stick needles in them they, to keep them awake all sorts of things to keep these poor runners awake so yeah drugs were unfortunately part of it and because that was part of it i have researched well what happened to a lot of these runners after their careers and a lot of them unfortunately um uh went insane or um died early others others had very long lives but i i've got to wonder if the poor health things that they were doing really contributed to uh poor health later in their lives so moving back to the u.s when did the first kind of like hundred mile mountain race start? Uh, you could, you could. It depends on what you call. I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, there were hundred mile mountain races going on with the Tarahumara in Mexico, uh, but purely, purely the United States. It depends on what you call them because I rem- remember these. There wasn't pavement uh, back then, and then what's a what is a hundred mile right. mountain race? But I'd certainly give Western states the credit of being the first, uh, first true one, probably uh, that really got the focus on on it and became very good. Uh, but there, but the problem is saying, well, they were the first. Then you're not giving credit to a lot of these others that were happening. And there were a lot of 100 uh, mile road races going on, uh, right. especially in Flushing Meadows and and uh, even even Shea Stadium and uh, other other places that were going on. But it, I guess the 100 mile distance kind of worked its way west at some point. And that was around the 50s yeah. and 60s. Well, uh, 
you know, so at low, lower distances, you got uh, you got the JFK 50 uh, that essentially started in 1963 as a club race, uh, which is which is on dirt, uh, and um, I mean, I mean, a good share of it's on the canal uh, towpath, but. Uh, that was certainly a trail trail race that started in the 60s. And so a lot of these yeah, ultra running races were going on in mostly in the east. But then in the west, what started were a lot of track track races. So they had 50 mile races on tracks and and um, that were uh, were were san- sanctioned by athletic uh organizations of being national championships and so forth and all that was going on in the the 60s and and so forth but uh but but you're right so during the late 70s with western states that's when that type of race started getting attention and then others started to copy that format and you gotta remember that these were started by horse endurance Right. Uh, riders who really knew nothing about running. Uh, they knew about endurance. And so they would put in practices in Western states like the uh, certain checkpoints and, and medical checks and so forth that they would do for horses. And so they kind of put those also in with, uh, with the humans. Uh, but that was great. I mean, that, and so that format was kind of copied the next, the next one was Old Dominion that was in Virginia. And that also, they had horses involved uh, with that one. And, uh, and then you got, uh, the Wasatch Front 100 that, uh, and they would consult with the Western states organizers and how, how do you put on these races? And so then it's kind of bubbled from there. You got, uh, uh, all, you know, all the others that started popping up. Yeah. And a lot of these races that we've talked about are still held every year. Um, have you run the Grand Slam? I have. I've run them all except Western States. I've never, okay. never run Western States. It's just hard to get through the lottery and it's hot. I do not like hot races. And that's, that can be a very, very hot race. So. Yeah. Uh, through the years, I just found other hundred milers at the same time that were far more uh, beautiful and more mountainous and more enjoyable. And so I would run a lot of those races instead. But yeah, I've done Leadville several times, Wasatch many times, and and Vermont a couple times. I think the history uniting all those races is like really fascinating um, and important for the sport. Aside from like the athletic achievement of just like running all those in a calendar year. Um, so aside from Gordy Ainsley, who are some people in ultra running's history that, you know, the main, or I guess like people might not have heard of, uh, that don't get enough credit for, for really helping the sport grow. Oh, well, Ted Corbett, of course, that I've mentioned right. that, uh, very important. In fact, he's really considered the father of American ultra running. And so, if if you're if you're giving Gordy that credit, who has never won a race and never <laughs> even put on a race, uh, be careful. Uh, Ted Corbett is truly the one who brought the sport to America. Um, but there were some there were some great great runners. Park Barner, he was really uh, during the late seventies and eighties was he was called the human metronome because he would run 
paces, very steady paces throughout his races. Uh, but he was very prolific and would run a race one weekend and jump in his car and go to another race and go win that race too. And he was just incredible. He's, he's still living. Uh, and, um, and so many of these, 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 uh, are just amazing. Of course, then as the women got involved, um, you know, it took, you know, women, women and running, it, they, while they were very involved back in the 19th century, uh, it was then kind of shunned on for many years after that. And it wasn't until the 70s that women got involved. And so, um, so when they did get involved, they immediately started breaking records, breaking world records and continually, uh, because they were all soft records. And it was great to see what these women did. But it was Ann Trayson who, when she came onto the sport in the late eighties and early nineties, it was just wow. She was just, not only was she breaking records, she was smashing records. And, uh, I think she went on to win Western states for, I think 14, 14 years and was just incredible. And so she, she needs to be known. I, uh, I'm now the, the director for the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame. And so also on my, my, um, site, uh, it's all the, those who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so, um, um, there's a number of these, Park Barner and others that are in the Hall of Fame that are just, you read through their careers and it's, it's pretty impressive and, and incredible what they've done. What does that process look like? How do you how do you get into the Ultra Running Hall of Fame? <laughs> you get, well, you can send me uh, cookies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, I mean it. It started by Dan Brannon, and uh, who himself is a legend, who uh, was a good runner, but also the administrator who really started the international uh, ultra running uh, organizations. And he he decided, um, can't remember what year it was, that there would never be an ultra runner in the track and field Hall of Fame. Uh, the track and field Hall of Fame just they just weren't paying attention to ultra runners, and so he decided to create the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame. And and Ted Corbett was of course one of the first that was inducted, and. Um, so he he carried it on for many years ago, and a few few years ago he turned it over to me. Said, "Could you could you take it over?" And so, what I do each year, and I, I just, they used to do just one a year. I've decided to try to do two a year to induct two a year, and it just it takes an effort to be able to research and compare careers of individuals, and get some advice from some very trusted historians out there and ultra runners that. that that no, I mean, I'll, I will get emails from people, you know, their, their father, uh, maybe ran 10 races out there, never won anything. And they think he should be in the hall of fame. Well, you're probably not going to be in the hall of fame. So, um, but the criteria is you have to be, have to be retired from the sport for 10 years or have reached the age of 60. And so, and Trayson went in a couple of years ago because she reached 60 and it was a no, no brainer, uh, very easy to do. And there's a couple others that are coming up that, uh, that are just, uh, yeah, they, they've got to be in there. So, yeah, that segues nicely with my next question, uh, which is who do you think is the greatest ultra runner of all time? <laughs> I had to ask it. It's the, it's the kind of like Michael Jordan, LeBron James question. <laughs> 
Well, uh, yeah, it, that's a great question. So it's always been for quite a few years, Yanis Kouros uh, of Greece. I mean, he just shattered all the unbreakable records, whether it's the six day record that had been held for uh, 80 years, I think, or almost 100 years, and then started shattering all these other records. Uh, now, he was never a trail racer, uh, but he was, he was, he, he just, was heads and shoulders about above anyone else and i think is is recognized at least for the distances that he did as probably the greatest and and then um but there's a man named don ritchie the the stubborn scotsman who uh man you got to give him some credit uh he he did amazing things too so you get kind of some debate about those two individuals there but now you go into the modern era, yeah. <laughs> the real modern era, and you have some runners that are doing just some incredible things. So you have uh, Alexander Sor- Sorkin of Lithuania, who just in this last year or so has broken the long, the 100-mile record, the 24-hour record, the 100K record. And, uh, we never thought some of these records would be broken like this. And so you've got to give him, well, see where his career goes, but you got to give him some credit. And on the women's side, you have Camille Heron, who has broken the 100 mile world record and the 24 hour world record, who is, is breaking Anne Trayson's records. Uh, now she's, she's not as good as Anne was on the trails again. So it kind of depends on what your definition of, right. of your ultra runner is. So if you move on to the trails, you got Jim Walmsley, of course, and what he's been doing on the trails. So there's just, there's some great goats out there and, yeah. uh, uh, kind of pick, pick what you want and give them honor and, and credit to what they're, they're doing. Killian Journey's year this year, which I'm yeah. sure you followed, has been one for the for the ages. Yeah. Uh, having won UTMB and Hard Rock, as well yep. as doing well at the shorter distances, it's incredible. His like yep. his longevity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'll. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. not American, but he so would. Uh, it's just it's just really weird because you know I'd say about ten years ago we didn't think this would happen that all the you know people would start breaking all these records. Uh, and uh, and doing it in such impressive ways, uh, but you know it's bound to happen. I mean, better athletes, better conditioning, better better equipment, better training. Um, these you know these runners like Giannis Kyrus, they didn't know what they were doing. He even set a world record while running during a hurricane in New York City, uh, running constantly with wind going crazy. Uh, so all sorts of different conditions and equipment that people use back in the day. It, it just, it's like comparing the, in the NBA, the, the, the players from the eighties to the ones now, you know, right. who's the best? And it, it's, it's a fun activity to, to kind of consider. It's and, great uh, podcast material. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now also you have all of the the runners coming over from uh, the marathon and the track, uh, which yeah. is kind of a, a newer occurrence. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 interesting to watch and see what they do. Some some seem to come thinking that they're going to take over the sport, you know, and they kind of sit back, you know, as a veteran hundred miler, and I say, well, it's not quite that way, right? 
let's let's watch and see. And so some of them have done, you know, had a had a really great race, but then the next race kind of just fall apart. Uh, it, it really takes some learning how to how to be consistent and how to do. Even Camille, you know, in in recent years, uh, will have some really poor. Uh, poor races, uh, and, and she's very careful about not wanting to, to injure herself. And, and so, so, so have some good races and some bad races. People, people use different techniques to do that. Before I get you out of here, I want to ask you about what you're working on right now. <laughs> uh, I have a, on my podcast, this is, I'm having a ball. I'm doing this series called Ultra Running Stranger Things. And so what I've done is I've collected all the really bizarre things that I found in the 19th century that would just boggle your mind about what what people have done. Uh, just these strange things. I mean, everything from, you know, all the cheating going on, the um, the race fixing, the uh, we've talked about the drugs and all that. Uh, but then the individuals and what their lives were like, because a lot of these people would get very rich. I, I'm talking about really, really rich, a lot of money back then. They would they would earn the, the equivalent of today a million dollars in in a year in winnings in these races. And then it, it's incredible to see what they did with it. Um, some of them turned to fast lives and criminal activities and <laughs> did all these, we became horse thieves and all, all these things. I'm telling, I'm just having a ball telling these different stories about these individuals that just got to kind of boggle your mind. And I think they're fun. I just love history. And to me, to me, I'd, I'd rather read these history stories than fiction because these history stories that were true, you just, you just can't, it's just amazing that what happened back then. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I can't wait to, uh, to dive in and, uh, we'll link, we'll link that series in the notes for this, this episode. Um, Great. Davey, thanks for, for talking to me. This has been uh, a great conversation. Great. I, I appreciate you having me on and, and uh, keep, keep up the good work with what you're doing on your podcast. And I hope you do a lot of skiing episodes. I hope to get, get skiing again. <laughs> All right. We can help you out with that. <laughs> All right. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Davey for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.